We continue this week in our on-the-job training sermon series, and and to, to start out, um, we're going to share a phrase, probably one of the most important phrases you will ever hear, but also as a um, as a Christian, especially for me as a, as a pastor, it's one of the I feel like one of the most dangerous phrases, one of the uh, most intimidating phrases. Um, we can put that on the, on the screen. The phrase is, God says, right? God says, this is probably one of the most challenging things about being a pastor, is standing in front of people, whether it be um, on a Sunday morning or sitting in a, a hospital room or standing in front of uh, a congregation for a wedding, um, having a conversation in the, in the store with somebody you run into, Declaring that God says something. Declaring to people what God is saying. Communicating definitively, this is what God wants you to know. Communicating God's nature. What is God like? Um, Defining what God's mission is. Defining the way that God sees people or the way that God sees um, creation. It's... Sometimes we call for action. God says you should do X, Y, Z, right? God says it's a powerful statement. There's a lot that comes with this. God says. This week's scripture, which we're going to turn to in a moment, um, tells, talks, discusses, mentions false teachers. False teachers. False teachers use the authority of this phrase, God says, Um, to get whatever they want done, right? To get people to respond how they want people to respond. God says X, Y, Z, and they want people to hear that and respond faithfully to God. Um, But as a result, they actually, these false teachers, move people farther away from God. This is why this, this God says phrase is so important, it's so powerful, but it's also so dangerous, Because good, well-intentioned people that say, yes, I want to do what God says to do, can actually be moved farther away from God when they listen to false teachers. Our scripture today comes from a letter to a young leader in a church where false teachers were one of the major challenges that this church had to face. Um, In the words of the author of our text this morning, the false teachers are conceited. These false teachers understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. And there's constant friction between people of corrupted minds who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. These false teachers that we're going to be looking at in the scripture um, live in the city of Ephesus. The book uh, Ephesians, it's actually a letter to a church um, that's in the city of Ephesus. Right, so that's the connection if you, if you aren't aware of that. But these false teachers in Ephesus thrive on conflict. They thrive on drama that has created broken relationships and continues to create broken relationships. Uh, The scriptures tell us that people become jealous of one another, that they talk about each other in harmful and painful ways. They've assumed the worst about each other. Um, 
They look for evidence of evil in each other's lives, and they always seem to find it. And they think that the primary reason to be a good person, to be a devoted follower of God, is because it will benefit you in worldly rewards, material gains. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes a letter to his, his disciple, his young mentee, you know, Paul's mentoring, discipling, teaching him how to lead churches. So Paul writes a letter to Timothy, explaining to him not only how to confront these false teachers, um, but also to challenge the culture that allows these false teachers to thrive, right? So he's not just addressing the teachers, not just challenging the people on a personal level. He wants to address the culture in that church that makes people responsive to this false teaching. Does that make sense? Why are people so quickly drawn into drama and conflict with one another? Why is this false teaching appealing to people who are trying to follow Jesus? So far in this series of on-the-job training, we've been looking at stories that Jesus told or stories from Jesus' life. <clears throat> this week, uh, we, we jump to this letter because I want, I want us to take a look at what uh, the implications of discipleship looks like in a church, right? So um, for the next few weeks, we're actually going to look at letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. So as, as Paul works out what does it mean to be a disciple who makes disciples, we can read their mail about the conversations, the challenges that they're having um, during this on-the-job training. Timothy is a young minister, um, and Paul is trying to mentor him, disciple him. So all of that is introduction that gets us to our scripture this morning, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 19. (coughs) It'll be on the screen, or you can follow along. There's Bibles. under the chairs, or if you have your own Bible or a Bible app. However you get to the word, um, follow along. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 19. It says, of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in the unapproachable light, (coughs) whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. For those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Um, Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would gather our minds that we may be one with you. Open our ears so we may hear your word. Soften our hearts so we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So there's a lot going on in these verses, this letter from Paul to Timothy. There's a a lot happening here, and so as we try to understand everything that's going on, um, we do well to remember that Paul isn't telling Timothy how to handle the false teachers. Right? That's the backdrop of this. There's false teachers, and, and Paul is writing a letter to Timothy to encourage him to give him direction, and he's not saying how to handle these false teachers. He's confronting the thing inside the church that makes the false teachers appealing. Right? Because what is it that is making this false teaching attractive to these Christians, to these church members, right? Because if, if somebody showed up and started teaching false teaching and nobody followed it, nobody listened to it, it wouldn't be an issue. So the, the, yeah, it's a problem that there's false teachers, but the real issue is that Christ followers are being lured in. There's something attractive, there's something appealing about this false teaching that is leading people in their attempts to be faithful, leading them away from the true gospel. He's confronting the thing inside the church that allows this false teaching to take root. There's something happening here that's appealing to the hearts and to the minds of these church members. So to give a little context to help us understand what could be going on here, um, I want us first to look at this, this image. Have you ever heard of the Temple of Artemis? Do we have a slide for that? Did I make that? Okay, we throw that up. This is the Temple of Artemis. This is in the city of Ephesus. Um, You know that in in ancient days, there was these pagan temples that the different gods and goddesses were worshipped in, and it was part of the community or the city. Um, The Temple of Artemis uh, is is one of the uh, seven wonders of the world. Um. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. Um, So who worshipped in this temple? Who worshipped Artemis? Well, honestly, a lot of people. She's probably the most worshipped deity in the ancient world, in the time of Paul. This was a very popular god uh, to worship, a very popular temple to um, go and worship in. Well, how did this temple, the presence of this massive temple, this popular (coughs) deity, affect the life of the people that lived in Ephesus? Well, the fact that this temple was there and people would come from all around to Ephesus because of this temple, it brought a tremendous amount of wealth into the city. Travelers would come and they'd bring offerings and they'd have to stay and they'd have to buy food and I mean, it was like a, a travel destination. It brought a tremendous amount. And in fact, it it became the world's largest bank at that time. Like it was kind of a a banking system set up there. 
And so people came from all over the world to worship Artemis and celebrate in extravagant festivals. There would be these, these festivals that people would come and they would worship. And there were statues and music and feasts and dancing and theatrical presentations and storytelling and chants of allegiance. People would come from all over to participate in this. And like I said, this temple was one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. It was, it was massive. It was incredible. It was legendary. But part of the reason why this, this deity, this Artemis, was so appealing, was so, so tempting, so drew so many people in, was so popular, <coughs> is because the promise of fertility, the promise of abundant life, of long life, of good life, was connected to this, this god. <coughs> Man, I got a tickle. Um, there was the promise of protection during pregnancy, a promise of protection during childbirth, which... Again, prior to our medical advancements in recent years, was a risky and dangerous proposition. Um, and so they worshipped this, this goddess, this, this deity Artemis. You wanted wealth, fertility, long life. You wanted your satisfied desires. They were the goal. That's what you were after. It's what you wanted. And in order to get that, you would have to worship Artemis and worship Artemis correctly. Proper worship brought about the blessings, the results that you wanted, right? This is how it worked. And so when Paul shows up and the church in Ephesus is born, there are converts who hear the gospel for the first time. And yeah, Jonas has got some water for me. That would be awesome. Otherwise, it's going to be a whole lot of coughing. Thanks, dude. All right. Um, so, like I said, Paul showed up. He kind of birthed the church in Ephesus. And there was converts. People from all over the place in this city came to pledge their allegiance to King Jesus. They heard the gospel and they accepted it. And they began following the teachings of Jesus. They turned their back on the worship of Artemis and started worshiping Jesus. But as these letters to Timothy indicate, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, right? As these letters to Timothy indicate, there are some people who find the teachings of Jesus appealing, but don't fully let go of the worship of Artemis. The false teachers whose teaching results in envy and conflict and strife. There's false teachers teach that obedience to a god results in material gain. Because that's the system that they understand. That's how they understand religion. <clears throat> if you are deeply con committed to your God, then that God is obligated to give you what you want in return. Obedience to God equals material gain for you. To which Paul responds in verse 6 of chapter 6, the first verse we read this morning. Um, we've got a slide for that. It says, of course, there is great gain... Right? There's great gain in godliness. Oops, so that's, that's the fundamental truth that these false teachers are teaching. If you are um, being godly, if you are worshiping correctly, if you're living according to the deity, um, there's much to be gained. There's great gain there. But then Paul goes on and says, combined with contentment. 
And that's an important indication. That's an important uh, little tidbit that is added there. The previous verse, verse 5, which we didn't read, talks about people who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And then Paul says in verse 6, well, of course there's a lot to be gained, um, but also when you combine godliness with contentment. You see what Paul is doing here? He's, he's saying, yes, there's a lot to be gained by being godly, by, by following our, our God, worshiping our God, by being completely devoted. There's a lot to be gained when it's combined with contentment. Godliness combined with contentment results in a great gain. God is not a means to get worldly security or worldly treasures. Paul says that um, these people in Ephesus should be content with the food and clothes that God provides, right? And that's Paul's way of saying that God is going to provide their basic needs, and that should be enough. That through the church and through God's, God's presence, people will be taken care of. They will have what they need. And there are those that think following God will give them good life according to the world's standards. And Paul says that is not the attitude that Christians should have. Well, why shouldn't Christians have that attitude? Verse 9 and 10 tells us. He says those who want to be rich, those pursuing the wealth and the treasures of the world, the comforts of the world, those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmless desires, right? So you're chasing worldly wealth, worldly comforts, worldly success, and you are trapped by these desires that only plunge people into ruin and destruction. Then he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, in their eagerness to get these things, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Those who seek worldly treasures become prisoners of temptation. Those who are seeking and chasing after things become prisoners of those desires, of those things that they are seeking. And ultimately, it leads to pain and destruction. God is commending his people to love their neighbors, to love one another, to love God. And pursuit of these worldly things puts them on a path that God doesn't want them to go on. They don't lead to life. They lead to pain and destruction. Uh, it's the, one of the words there that Paul uses is the word pierced. They, they leave the faith and they are pierced by these desires. That word pierced is a, is a difficult, difficult one. It literally means they've impaled themselves in their efforts to pursue, pursue comfort and pleasure and success, they have impaled themselves onto these things of the world. Paul seems to be saying here that as our pursuits of the good life in worldly terms continue, the more hurt and harm we do ourselves and each other. So that's the context of our, our letter, our scripture this morning. That's kind of what's going on here, right? What about today? Do we, as uh, people in 2022, know anything about uh, people pursuing success, security, happiness that can be found in worldly pursuits? Can we, do we, are we, are we familiar with the idea that, that 
our comfort, our peace of mind, our happiness is going to be determined by what's in our bank accounts, what kind of car we have, how much our paycheck is, um, uh, what our title, reputation is, the person who dies with the most toys wins, right? Like, that acquiring worldly treasure is the path to the good life. That attitude, being a Christian, means that in response to being a godly person, God will give you the same things that the sinful and fallen humanity desires, right? We all want success, but if I'm a Christian, then I get a shortcut to the front of the line or something. God is entitled or required to, to uh, provide my success that way. Do we as Christians today know anything about that type of prosperity gospel where being a good Christian means worldly success and worldly treasure? Is that the ends uh, that we're aiming for? Is that why we are following Jesus, to acquire worldly comforts? We live in a culture that thinks wealth and power is the answer to all our problems. Where good and godly people get the most, and those with little wealth probably aren't following God well enough. So if your life is great, you must be religious, you must be faithful, you must be obedient, and if things are hard, you probably did something wrong. That's kind of the under girding assumption in so much of our culture these days. People think that God's job is to give them worldly comforts so they don't need anything. So what does Paul's letter have to say to us, the church trying to be faithful in this culture that we just described? Well, I think Paul would say something like this. There's a connection between trusting God, being content, and our ability to love others. It's all wrapped up together. There's a connection between our ability to trust God, our ability to be content with where we are at and what we have, and our ability to love others. So it's, it's faithfulness, yes, but it's also peace, yes, but it's also mission. It's all wrapped up in one. We feel that... <clears throat> When we feel that our security and our safety, our success, and our happiness depend on what we do or what we have, we find ourselves trusting in those things more than we find ourselves trusting in God. God might be a means for us to get those things that we trust in, but we're trusting in them, not God. Because it seems like when asked how much do you need, our culture answers more. It's always more. There are people who have millions or even billions of dollars, more than could ever be spent in a lifetime, more than many of us will ever, ever see. Combine, you could probably combine everybody's wealth in here. There's people that have more than that, and yet today they are consumed by the pursuit of more. It's not enough. It hasn't satisfied. There's a desire. There's millionaires and billionaires who not only are pursuing more, but are choosing to do unethical and even illegal things, putting themselves, their family, and everything at risk to get more. Because it's not enough. It hasn't satisfied millionaires, billionaires, spending their days pursuing more because what I have just isn't enough. It's never enough. It's not just the wealthy that wrestle with this, though. Have you ever thought to yourself that maybe I don't get paid enough for the work that I do? 
Maybe I deserve a little bit more. When the bills come each month, I, I can kind of make it work, but man, to have more would be, would be better. I'd probably be a little bit more comfortable if I had a little bit more. The things you wish you could uh, buy that would make your life better, this is the trap I fall into. I uh, grew up in the 80s where marketing seemed to take a whole new thing. Grew up seeing these toys and technologies on screens and going, oh, if I had that, life would be better. Life would be less complicated. I would have more tools. I would, and some of the stuff I never even knew I needed, but then I see it, I'm like very much aware of a need that I have. Even if I just realize it now. Honestly, this is how our world functions. This is how so much of it is, is designed to, to exist. This, this drive, it, it moves because people are not satisfied with what they have. Because what we have is not enough, we have to have more, right? So people needing more is the engine that drives so much of the world. And if you are happy and content with what you have, if your iPhone 13 is doing just fine, the 14 came out a couple weeks ago, and now you need that, right? This is how it works. There's nothing wrong with the previous 13 versions of the iPhone, but the 14 is going to put that... There's a few new features, there's some new things. You start thinking in the back of your mind, if I had that, life would be better. Their goal, the goal of our culture seems to be to make us less satisfied with what we have. But it's not just money that Paul's talking about. And I've been kind of talking heavily on the financial side of stuff, and that's a big part of this. Those are the words that Paul is using. But he's not just talking about money. He's, he's talking about a temptation to pursue worldly things, to pursue happiness in, through the way that the world would provide happiness. Or at least tries to provide happiness. Because it doesn't satisfy. We're chasing after the world's comfort, the world's pleasure, or a sense of security. And in those efforts to chase these things that the world provides us with so many different options, Paul says none of these things actually lead us to where we want to go. The answers that the world provides lead us to conflict, brokenness, shame, guilt, and despair. It leads nowhere. And so what does Paul say to do to escape these traps and temptations? What does Paul say we should do rather than trust the worldly answers to our situations, the worldly solutions to make our lives more comfortable, safe, and secure? Paul says we should put our trust in God instead of wealth and treasure. Right? But how do we do that? How do we accomplish that? Well, verse 11 that we read a few moments ago, Paul says, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith. Pursue love, pursue endurance, pursue gentleness. Instead of pursuing the things that the world offers as solutions, pursue the things that God offers as solutions. Not as a means to something else, like if I'm a gentle person, then I'm going to get millions in my bank account, but gentleness because that's who God is. Righteousness, at the root of that word, it's a very churchy word, is it not? Righteousness. At the root of that word means right pathness. Um, on the right path, on the right road. Godliness. 
emulating the nature of Jesus. Love, endurance, gentleness. Instead of pursuing these things that the world is offering us and inviting us to chase after, pursue the things that God has given us. And that's the invitation for us today. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. And if we take that call seriously, if we hear that invitation from Paul some 2,000 years later, we take that seriously, the unquenchable desires that leads to conflicts, that leads to envy, wounds, and attacks on other people, will be replaced with something else entirely. Contentment. We start to see that in Jesus, and in Jesus' community of believers, we have enough. We have what we need. Our needs are met. Sure, we may not have everything we want, but here's the secret. We'll always want more. (laughs) But we can find rest and peace when our trust is in God and not in worldly things. And that peace, that contentment, that lack of fear as we look at our situation and look at the world around us, that that lack of fear that we won't have enough, it allows us to have an attitude of compassion. When we start to see that God is providing for us what we need, we find ourselves willing and able to love our neighbors through our actions. Right? So the statement we read a few moments ago, there's a connection between trusting God between being content, if we trust God, we can be content, right? Like, if we're depending on God to give us what we need, we can be content and at peace. And if we are content and at peace, then we can love our neighbors and love each other the way that God wants us to. If you find yourself lacking contentment, if you find yourself unhappy with what you have, or if you find yourself afraid because you don't have enough, the scarcity... Uh, of, of resources or what you need, then you look at other people as a potential threat. They're going to take from me what I need. I'm in competition with them for the resources that I have. So if you find yourself lacking contentment, if you find yourself unhappy with what you have, it's possible that the problem isn't with how much is in your bank account. It's possible that the problem is that we're looking to the worldly solutions to bring us peace and satisfaction. It might be that we are holding on to that temptation to trust our possessions and our worldly wealth and material items to take care of us. If I have the right job, the right salary, the right house, the right car, the right spouse, then life will be good and I will be happy and everything will be as it should be. But the truth is that our culture today, right now, 2022, has more comforts available to us than ever before in human history. Right? We have more advantages, more technology, more uh, just resources to make our lives comfortable and better available to us than ever before in human history. And yet, we are experiencing stress, anxiety, depression, divorce, broken homes, burnout, suicide at a higher rate than any other time before us. So despite having all this resources of comfort in our culture, all these treasures of the world, all these options to answer that, that desires of our heart that's available to us, despite having all of that, people are in worse shape. 
The riches and comforts of this world just don't satisfy. The pursuit of worldly things, as Paul says, will pierce those who are seeking them. God wants more for us than to believe these false teachers and to pursue worldly comforts. God has a better plan for us. And once we understand what God has for us, and we are compelled to share it with others because we can see other people piercing themselves, impaling themselves in the pursuit of these resources that will not satisfy. If we find ourselves or other people afraid of other people, worried about them because they are a threat, if you think these others will, could be a barrier <clears throat> to you securing your own comfort and safety, it could be that these strangers aren't as dangerous as we think they are, but rather we believe that these resources are just too limited. There's only so much in the world, and I need it, and they need it, so we're in competition with one another. We might realize that we aren't content with what we have because our neighbor is a threat to us as we compete to acquire the resources we need. So why is this important as part of our sermon series on being disciples, Jesus followers, who embrace the mission of making disciples, helping other people follow Jesus? Why is it important? Well, being content, being at peace, offers an alternative way of living compared with the culture we live in. It is a radically different attitude and posture towards the world. Contentment. Right? It's a radically different way of living compared to a culture that is always seeking more, that is never satisfied, never content. Our culture is being torn apart by anxiety, despair, greed, a sense of worthlessness, and a sense of failure. And all of this is being driven by the lie that achieving material success is how security and value are found. People have dedicated their whole lives to following and pursuing these things, and when they get it, they realize it doesn't satisfy, and those who don't get it feel like they've missed the mark. For those who don't achieve the worldly wealth, they're labeled a failure and are crushed by the system, by a world that says you don't measure up. You have no value because you haven't achieved. For those who do achieve some level of worldly success, they realize it's not what, what was promised. I'm still not satisfied. There's vulnerabilities. I need more. The issue isn't whether or not you're winning the rat race. Nobody wins the rat race. It's a, it's a participation in that race that Paul says is piercing. It does damage to your body and to your soul. It leads away from contentment and peace. And so this, this way of Jesus, this teaching of Paul that is sent to Timothy to help the church in Ephesus, Resist the temptations of the false teachers, right? He's, he's not saying you need to go kick these false teachers out of the church or punch them in the face. He's saying you need to work with the believers who are being drawn in to this temptation, this desire. Paul's telling Timothy to, to empower this radical revolution of contentment. This, this revolution of contentment was a threat to the empire. One of the most powerful empires in the world, this gospel of contentment, challenged them and won. 
And it really comes down to trusting God and being content and then loving others by being generous. It sounds so simple, maybe too simple, but this is the way of living that Jesus taught his disciples to live. But beyond that, this way of living, this Jesus way of living was so appealing to the non-Christians in the ancient world, this good news of Jesus spread like wildfire. It spread uncontrollably. It turned the world upside down. And so the invitation for today, may we hear the words of Paul. Let us become a people who aren't pursuing the things that the world has to offer. Let's not put our hope and our trust in the worldly answers to things, but rather become and be a people that pursue godliness. Not so that we can get something else, but so that we can experience the life that God has for us. May we pursue godliness, righteousness, gentleness, patience, right? So that's the invitation for us today. What does that look like? It might look different depending on where you're at in your walk with Jesus. If you're just starting out, it could be overwhelming. If you've been a lifelong Christian, you might be able to identify, oh, this is one area that I haven't surrendered to God yet. So I invite you this week to spend time in prayer and examination. What does it look like to pursue righteousness in your life today? I'm going to pray as the worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.